Hello and welcome to the Tool Assisted Podcast. This is your host, the 8-Bit Beast, and today is the 9th of July, 2020. I'm talking with Isotage today, and this is very special because it's our first podcast on this series that'll be done in person. Welcome, Isotage. Thank you very much for having me. So give us a brief overview of, I guess, why you're on the show, what you do in the TAS community, and what we'll be talking about today. Well, I've had a very long history with uh, speedrunning and tazzing. Um, I started with, like, uh, The Ninja in 2012 um, was my first Taz project. I was super into uh, music producing at that point, and I really liked the UI of the piano roll in, like, tools, digital audio workstation tools. Uh, so, like, Taz Studio was so natural to me. Um, I love that method of inputting for a Taz. It just seemed to make complete sense. I really wanted that to work. It wasn't quite at the stage where it was stable at that point in 2012 with BizHawk. Um, it was quite crashy and things like that. So what I actually ended up doing was entering inputs uh, in Notepad, um, playing the run back and checking for desyncs, um, which wasn't the best workflow. It took me way longer than it should have to make that. The initial Taz wasn't really a speed-focused Taz. It was more like a play-around thing. I guess I wasn't too familiar with uh, what everybody else in the community was doing at that point, so I was just really doing my own thing. Uh, but yeah, that was my first introduction to tazzing. Mm, yeah, I remember you showing me that when you first came up with your idea of editing the Notepad document, which I thought was ridiculous, editing the inputs directly. But of course, now pretty much everyone does that method through Taz Studio. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I can see why you did it in retrospect. Yeah. Um, so, what other Tazzes did you work on as well? Yes, so uh, my next project was uh, Lord of the Sword, which is another Sega Master System game. They're both uh, Sega Master System. Um, did some glitch hunting and routing for that uh, in late 2012, around 2013, and uh, did my first proper Taz um, with like fully developed uh, Taz Studio tools in 2015. Mm, so what are some new things that you found in Lord of the Sword? Yes, uh, so... Uh, there was a uh, demo desync, I guess you would call it. Um, can't remember the exact terminology we came up with. But a demo wrong warp, essentially. Yeah, a demo yeah. wrong warp. Yeah. So um, when you you get like continues in that game. So when you reset, um, you can continue from where you was or when you die. And uh, we abused that um, when the demo plays, like if you wait on the menu long enough, when the demo plays, uh, it sets your checkpoint uh, to the demo map. So you can like warp across the entire game, which would normally take ages. Um, you can warp straight to the map that the demo plays on and save a whole bunch of time in routing with that. So that was one of our discoveries, actually. We discovered that uh, together, um, doing research on that game. And, uh, oh my goodness, um, jump chaining was the next big one. Um, that I actually discovered while going through the game and making the Taz. Um, it started off looking like pretty standard movement, uh, but eventually discovered that glitch, and it just absolutely broke the game to pieces. <laughs> so when you take damage in Lord of the Sword, you go into a knockback animation, which is used to move you back from the damage source while your invincibility frames uh, play out. Uh, to prevent getting stunlocked, uh, normal movement has a speed cap of between negative uh, 1.0 and 1.0 velocity. So that's uh, left and right. And this knockback animation has a cap of between negative 2.0 and 2.0 velocity. So that's left and right again. 
Um, at the end of your knockback animation, the game resets your speed to the lower speed cap of the normal movements. That's negative uh, 1.0 to 1.0. Um, but if you take damage in the air and you land on the ground uh, before your knockback animation finishes, you don't take the damage, uh, which is already pretty cool. Uh, but you also have a frame where you can start another jump without the speed cap resetting. So this allows you to keep chaining jumps and uh, build up speed way beyond the cap of uh, 1.0 and 2.0. Um, I use this technique everywhere I can in the TADS. Uh, it looks like you're a kangaroo hopping across the map uh, with increasing speed. Yeah, I couldn't believe it when you first discovered it and showed me. Like, you would um, come to visit and <laughs> uh, you said, do you want to see the new Lord of the Sword Taz? And I said, yeah, sure. What is it? Like 30 minutes? And you said, nope, 15. 15. <laughs> yeah. Yep. yep. <laughs> broken, in, broken in half. Yeah. Mm. Amazing. So um, for those who, I guess, don't know us as well, Isotage is actually my brother in real life. So yep. um, we've gone through a lot of this process together and he's the one that actually introduced me to speedrunning and tazzing all up. So, yeah, what, all the research that he's talking about was really fun because we got to do a lot of that together. That's right. Mm. And in person, too. Like, yeah. ha having someone, you know, quick back and forth like that is just amazing with the same interests and, you know, just being amazing. Mm. <clears throat> and somebody to help me with my terrible computer skills. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> and somebody to help me with my terrible routing skills. <laughs> so, yeah. We make, we make a good team. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were sitting there... Um, doing Lord of the Sword and Isotage was finding all of the jump chains and pause glitches and stuff. And then I was frantically trying to route it in knowing what the actual game progression was. I don't think you'd actually finished Lord of the Sword, had you? No, 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 never RTA. No. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that, that makes a good dynamic. And even before those, like I remember with you back in the day, we were more into like ROM hacking and stuff like that. Yeah. With Lord of the Sword, playing on Mecha emulator, yep. touching the RAM addresses, good fun. Classic. Yep. Mm. So I believe that I talked a bit on my Sonic episode about growing up with Sega and N64 games. Did you want to talk a bit about your experience with just gaming in general growing up outside of speedrunning? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Sega consoles mean a lot to me. Um, the Master System and the Mega Drive, we got extremely young in our childhood and they made a big impact on us. Um, the N64 means a lot to me as well. Um, yeah, huge part of our childhood, you know, playing Smash and Goldeneye and Super Mario and Banjo and you know, just Donkey Kong 64, just amazing times with that um growing up together um yeah so we we had uh when we went into our parents uh work we had like this secret room on top of the office um that we used to <laughs> we used to play our consoles on top of and you know mum would pop up and give us a bag of twisties every now and again <laughs> like twisties chips and sausage rolls sausage rolls yeah. um so that you know that was great it uh yeah just playing these uh really simple in retrospect Sega games, um, but they felt like they had infinite replay value uh, to us, even though they were, you know, pretty short and simple games in retrospect. Mm. Especially since we were bad and couldn't beat most of them. Yeah, that helps yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there were, we would always differ on which kind of games we liked, which was really interesting because it exposed us to a lot of different types. I remember you playing ATP to a tennis. Yes. And I thought, this is awful. And then a few years later, I was playing it 
yes. on my own when you weren't even there. So that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. The games that look like spreadsheets. Yeah. That's um, right. You know, megalomania <laughs> is a specific example of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember saying to you like, "Oh, Megalomania! That game's so boring. I can't believe you'd play that." And then I ended up getting like RTA World Record in it eventually. Yes, so, like, yeah, yeah. And we were like, of course, we grew up in late nineties, early two thousands, so we went through all the rumors and stuff. Oh like, yes, yeah. You telling me that you could jump behind the waterfall in Mario 64 and stuff like that. Yes. Yeah. I used to make up so many lies yeah, <laughs> to tell you. Tormenting uh, me. Yeah. Yes. Uh, we'd log on to super cheats, uh, the website every now and, again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and yeah. uh, see how to unlock, unlock a uh, Goku in uh, smash 64 and, mm. you know, Waluigi and silly things like that. Mm. <laughs> so that was a lot of fun. One thing we must do is go through our old cheat book. Yes. We had a folder full of printed cheats from the internet. Yes. We have to go through them. I really want to make a video of all the hilarious things on there. Uh, That'd be such a great time capsule of that uh, late 90s sort of internet culture for sure. Oh, definitely. And I think I was like six years old at the time. So you wrote on there for ages seven plus because you yeah, were Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I was gatekeeping you. Yeah. Yeah. I know, so I had to come to you for all the cheats. Yeah, I yeah. feel so bad about that nah, kind of well, stuff. That, that's just what people did back in the day. Though. Well, like little brother, big brother, yeah, yeah relationship yeah. things. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> all right. What have we got next? Um, yeah, so I think me and Iso often talk a lot about game design and what we really like to see in a game in more recent times, something like Hollow Knight was really pretty with the oh, yeah. forest stage. Oh man. Um, and we grew up like taking trips to down to Mount Gambia, for example, and looking at um, like going to the pine forest and stuff. So we were always really fond of like a good forest in a video game, like Sonic one jungle zone. Yep. Um, yeah. Lord of the sword walking through the trees. There, so that was really good. There's something atmospheric about a pine forest. Um, the oxygen just feels so fresh yeah, <laughs> in there. And you get that that swoosh of the wind as well. Um, and yeah, like a really dense pine forest. I like the aesthetic of um, like snow and things like that in there as well. Um, but also in terms of gameplay, um, we have this phrase like dropping you in a forest with a sword. So, like, fairly minimal story introduction, um, just straight into combat and gameplay uh, with some kind of equipment system for us, like an RPG or something. Um, that is a great way to start an RPG for us. Mm. So, I guess we were probably less familiar with the Nintendo side of things growing up, apart from N64. But a lot of the games that we played didn't have as much story. They kind of just dropped you in with really good game mechanics and that's probably what led us into speedrunning a lot rather than other avenues to explore games more in depth. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the big things that was really important to me was you introducing me to DK64 speedrunning. Yes. Um, so, yeah, that, that was the introduction video I would use uh, to get people into speedrunning, I guess. It got me into speedrunning as a uh, YouTube recommendation um, was how I originally saw it. Uh, C Fox's uh, run at, I believe it was AGDQ, um, the one that got the fake key, the famous fake key that uh, Ring Rush has talked about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so that, that was the first run that I saw that made a really big impact on me in terms of getting into RTA specifically. 
um, just seeing those glitches was like a mind blown uh, moment for me, for sure. Hmm. Yeah, and you were like, I think at that point you were living away from home. Yeah, I was uh, studying away from home. Yep. Yeah, so you came to visit and you're like, oh, uh, Jake, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> it's like, puts on Sea Fox's run and we're like, oh my God. And then we were doing like moon kicks later that night. <laughs> it was like really good swimming through. Well, we're trying to swim through vertical walls because we were on power, so that didn't work. Yeah, yeah, that was really good introduction. I mean, we didn't know about speedrunning before that, didn't we? Yes. Uh, in the early days, we would log on to Speed Demo's archive and uh, download, like, Pokemon Crystal Runs or something like that, Pokemon Yellow. Um, we had to download them one segment at a time <laughs> on, on a weekly basis because the uh, YouTube... Uh, or the library restriction, we didn't have an internet connection at home, so we would go to the library, and the restriction on that internet connection was a 700 megabytes uh, per session uh, download limit. So the speed demo, we could only download one part of the run at a time. <laughs> we would have to wait the next week to see the next part of the speed run. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we had to sit there and like rewatch that part of the speed run over and over and over. And then the next week you'd be not very interested in it anymore, so you'd have heaps of different part ones of speedruns on your computer. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think the one that I remember having was like Pokemon, probably Crystal or Gold or something, yeah. Which in retrospect wouldn't have been very optimized at all, but like, you know, it was just something interesting at the time. I don't know why we didn't look into Rareware N64 games. Yeah, that's a good point. It is a bit of a mystery why it took so long for us to find uh, speedrunning in that context. Mm. I guess we're just not having the internet for so long. The first thing that I did, I remember the night that we got internet, I stayed up till like midnight watching Stop and Swap Theories for Banjo-Kazooie. I never thought to look at like speedrunning stuff. And then I guess we just transitioned into ROM hacking more than speedrunning. Yeah, 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 trying to learn how games work on a technical level, for sure. Mm. At the end, that's all speedrunning really is. Yeah. Well, especially Tazzing. And even more so what you do with Script Talk. Yes. So it's um, adding replay value. Um, you've got all all you really can out of a game in terms of a, like a casual playthrough enjoyment. And you want to have some deeper experience with it. So you start um, investigating how it works on a technical level. You start investigating the game design, see how the mechanics work on a game design level. And uh, yeah, you start just learning from it as an example of what to do in game design. That's mm. uh, that's a lot of what speedrunning is for me anyway. <laughs> mm. Definitely. So did you want to talk a bit about your RTA career? Yes. Uh, so my biggest RTA game was Donkey Kong 64. Um, I have a quite a long history with that. Um, obviously, after seeing Sea Fox's run, I was immediately inspired to try it for myself. Um, unfortunately, we live in a power region, so a lot of the glitches that Sea Fox was doing in his run uh, did not work on our copy. Um, so that was interesting as well. It kind of forced me to like find ways around things, like find glitches that the NTSC people didn't need, um, PAL-only things that uh worked for me but weren't necessary for them um so that was i guess my introduction to glitch hunting uh in a way as well mm, but you did end up getting an ntsc console didn't you yes uh that's that's another interesting story <laughs> so <laughs> um obviously uh your listeners would 
likely be familiar with something called an EverDrive uh, for N64, which is like a um, a cartridge that you can plug an SD card into and essentially play games off of the SD card, uh, like backups and things like that. It's also more convenient. You don't, you don't have to switch cartridges anymore. Mm. Um, yes, yeah, so I bought a EverDrive um, to play Donkey Kong 64 the NTSC version on my PAL console. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> the problem with doing that is um, it actually runs faster. The NTSC version runs faster on a PAL console than it does on an NTSC console. So it gives you an advantage um, in terms of speed running, like cutscenes take shorter times. You get to places quicker um, with your movement, um, things like that. Um, it may be easier to clip because it could be more laggy because it's trying to um, do more, more processing in the same amount of time. Um, yeah, it's it gave me a clear advantage and I didn't realize it at the time. It totally wasn't intentional. But uh, thankfully, the DK64 community is um, quite forgiving with that kind of thing. Obviously, I could have been removed from uh, leaderboards if they wanted to. Um, that run was technically illegitimate. Um, my, I guess it was a 46, uh, minute time, I believe was my last run with that setup. So I started at around, uh, one hour was my first run. I improved on that setup, uh, to around a 46 minute time. Uh, this was using the five Kong route. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I had to invest pretty heavily at that point. I had to make a decision and uh, invest in an NTSC setup by a console from uh, Japan, a Jungle Green console, which I love. Um, and uh, yeah, a US uh, Donkey Kong 64 cart and uh, NTSC uh, S-Video cable and capture hardware, all of, all of the peripherals that go along with that. It's quite difficult to get up and running with a legitimate NTSC setup in a PAL region. We're just lucky in terms of N64, it's a bit easier because the actual power block is compatible from PAL. But something like Super Nintendo or Sega, we had to like solder together different cords just to get the thing running. Yeah, that was a nightmare. Uh, yeah. Going going back any further than N64, um, it gets a bit more difficult for sure. Mm. But we have between us got, I think, NTSC, Sega Genesis, Super Nintendo and N64 running. But um, TVs don't always support it either, which is a whole other nightmare. But usually PAL CRT TVs are pretty good at supporting NTSC. Yeah, they're surprisingly compatible. Mm. Not the other way around. If you want to play PAL in an NTSC region, it's much harder. Yes, uh, <laughs> yeah. I've, I've heard that has been a nightmare yeah, yeah, for those yeah. runners. Mm. So um, you ended up getting pretty good at 5Kong, didn't you? Uh, yes, uh, my current time in 5Kong is a... 42, I can't, I think it's 19. It's one second slower than Ring Rush's 5 Kong PB. <laughs> did you ever have the world record in 5 Kong? No, I don't. I don't think I did. My first world record was the 28 minute run. All right. So you were one of the very early people doing Hell Merely. Yes. Hmm. Cool. So do you want to talk a bit about what Hell Merely is? Yeah, sure. So, um, Ring Rush, the uh, crazy genius that he is. <laughs> um, more so now than ever. <laughs> more so now than ever. Absolutely. Um, huge respect for Ring Rush. Um, yeah, he found a tool-assisted method of doing um, a moon kick inside the Blastomatic 
um, on K Rules uh, Island in in DK sixty four to enter the hideout helm lobby early. Um, and why this is important is because normally to get to the hideout helm lobby, uh, you need Tiny's monkey port ability, uh, which we unlock normally during the older five column eighty percent route. Uh, this means unlocking Diddy and some of his moves too from the jungle japes to unlock Tiny. Um, and also unlocking Lanky in Angry Aztec to unlock Chunky for K roll moves. Uh, so being able to get to Key 8 in the Hideout Helm uh, with just DK from a fresh file uh, skips unlocking all of these Kongs. Uh, the only problem with doing that is he still needs some moves from each Kong to get through the K roll fight. Normally, this would mean unlocking the Kongs and buying the moves before attempting the fight, uh, like we do in the 5 Kong route. Uh, but the combination of this new hideout home early method as DK and uh, another glitch called main menu mode or MMM uh, is what ended up being the massive time saver between the five Kong and one Kong routes. Uh, I'll explain what MMM does later on, but if your listeners would like an in-depth explanation, I'd highly recommend they check out the new Donkey Kong 64 any percent Taz explained video by Bismuth on YouTube. Uh, and also the episode of this podcast that you did with uh, Ringrush and Tom Ballum. So Ringrush found a real-time method to get the Blastomatic kick into Hide at Helm Lobby, uh, and he was the first person to complete a Wong Kong any percent run. Uh, it's a pretty legendary run in the DK community, uh, which was almost lost to time, but uh, thankfully, I guess, not growing up with a reliable and fast internet connection uh, made me keep... Uh, backups of important runs. So I had a copy saved uh, when Twitch deleted it, uh, which I've since re-uploaded. His first run was a 34-minute run, uh, which he then improved further over the next few months in competition with uh, Signa and Xenonicus, uh, mostly. Uh, Xenonicus actually ended up getting the first uh, sub-30. so Ringrush ended up with a 29-29, uh, which is his current PB. Uh, when I got the world record, it was uh, using something called the 2015 route, which was some modifications to the main menu uh, moves or main menu mode uh, glitch that made it much tighter on timing. Um, and this was the first run that combined the 2015 MMM route uh, with DK Helm early was my run. Uh, the 28, I believe it was 2832. So what does MMM do? So MMM allows you to kind of take the moves that you would be granted in uh, the main menu uh, bonus stages, like a Rambi Arena or the boss fights or something like that. It allows you to take those extra moves that you would be granted into the main adventure game. Uh, And that allows you to skip unlocking Kongs and buying moves uh, during a speed run. So from a fresh file, uh, you wouldn't have to unlock everybody to beat K. Rule. Because you can't get to K. Rule with barely any moves at all, can't you? Uh, yes, you can get uh, to the fight um, quite easily, but the problem is uh, once you're inside the fight, you actually need moves to beat K. Rule. So you need Rocket Barrel and you need Tiny's Gun, uh, Lanky's uh, Instrument, things like that. Mm. And what's sort of happened to DK64 RTA since you had your record runs and since you're running that game? 
Yeah, so uh, I guess my my exit for DK sixty four RTA, um, I played on a GameCube style uh, replacement stick, and uh, that made it uh, quite difficult to do some a glitch called a skid jump, uh, which allows you to get uh, tag barrel storage, which is kind of the next revolution. Um, tag barrel storage allows you to get to hideout helm uh, much easier than doing the blastomatic kick that uh, Ringrush found. Um, so it's a much more accessible uh, run now than it was uh, previously. Um, that's a great thing, and it's great to see more runners uh, picking it up and trying it out. So combining tag barrel storage uh, with the 2015 route made it v- quite accessible uh, compared to what it was. Um, unfortunately, I once I had the world record, I just didn't quite feel the same motivation as I did for RTA. Um, and I started to focus on science a lot more. So glitch hunting, uh, examining the game on a technical level. I'd kind of got everything I could out of RTA in terms of enjoyment at that point. Um, I was quite satisfied. And there were other runners that were definitely taking on the challenge uh, of lowering the time more and more. Uh, eventually, a Virtual Console came around as well, which would uh, I would have to get a NTSC Wii U to oh, compete God. in that. <laughs> Uh, to compete in that legitimately. So um, uh, getting that set up was a, another, I guess, uh, like a, a gatekeeper, I guess, for me getting back into RTA. Yeah, so I was happy to move on to a more technical role, I guess, um, doing research and making tools and things like that. Cool. So I guess um, before we launch all the way into your technical role, tazzing and science stuff, Uh, Did you want to briefly touch on some of the other games that you did RTA? Yeah, sure. So I I dabbled in uh, Diddy Kong Racing. Um, I did a few 100% runs of that. I I was also watching the Any% category quite closely. I really enjoyed seeing Fash find glitches in that um, and uh, just seeing the balloon count get lower and lower and seeing more and more skips and crazy techniques. Uh, so I've always had an interest in that, but uh, yeah, uh, also the 100% category in that game uh, means quite a lot to me. I That was a great afternoon, uh, playing from a fresh file, going from scratch, um, DKR, playing all the way through. Yeah, definitely. And then we had a bit of a, uh, a, bit of a rivalry in Banjo-Kazooie, didn't we? Oh, yes. So, uh, so the Sandcastle percent category, uh, or any percent with cheats if you don't like the... Uh, the sandcastle percent nomenclature um yeah we we routed that together we did a few runs um we we collectively share quite an interest in the banjo with cheats uh categories so for example banjo tui with a hundred percent with cheats would actually be quite an interesting run to see um i would love to encourage uh routing and research for that uh category specifically um i think that would be great to see and eventually a taz of that would be amazing Mm. and yeah i'll well me and somebody will have to do an episode on banjo soon because there's been a lot happening there recently too absolutely (laughs) some major breakthroughs there it's just incredible to see Mm. all right so did you want to launch into your tazzing stuff more in depth now yeah, so as I said at the start, uh, the Ninja was my first game. I I was, I w- the tools were kind of letting me down in two thousand and twelve. Like I I was thinking too far ahead um, about the input method that I would prefer to do tazzing. So we have this distinction, like the traditional tazzing method of making a manual save state 
doing an input uh, frame by frame and then loading those save states if those inputs weren't correct. Um, that workflow really doesn't work uh, doesn't work well for me. Um, it just it feels so inefficient compared to the piano roll uh, layout of Taz Studio. So while it was a great uh, project, the Ninja, um, to get me thinking about those input methods, absolutely. Uh, it wasn't a great run in terms of quality. Uh, when I revisited that after working on Lord of the Sword, I was able to improve that drastically once the tools were uh, up to scratch and I was able to use the my preferred workflow more efficiently. Yeah, so with the Ninja, you were like, there was some weird stuff going on with lag and like the amount of shots that you had to do in that game. Did you want to talk a bit about your optimization with the hit percentage rate? Yes. Uh, so that game uh, keeps track of every shot you make inside the level, and it also keeps track of how many of those shots uh, hit. Um, it's also quite a laggy game, so the combination of those three things makes for an interesting uh, tazzing optimization experience. Um, the reason it matters uh, to watch those statistics is at the end of the level there is a bonus, um, and similar to... Um, Sonic on the Game Gear, it's quite long. <laughs> <laughs> so the more accurate you are with your shots, uh, the higher your hit ratio percentage is at the end of every level. 100% um, hit ratio is worth 50,000 bonus points, uh, which counts down in increments of 200 points uh, per frame, uh, which I believe works out to around 5 seconds. Uh, the less accurate you are and the lower that bonus is, uh, the faster you'll move on to the next level. Uh, that is until you get down to 0% hit ratio, uh, which gives you a glitched bonus of 10 million points, uh, which takes 14 minutes to count down. Uh, so optimally, you'd be going for 1% hit ratio in every level, uh, which gives you the smallest bonus score. Yeah, so watching those statistics is important. If you can make lots of shots that miss without causing too much lag uh, in through the level playthrough, your bonus is very short and you move to the next level much quicker. And uh, optimizing that was important to the run for me. Uh, I I understand the timing method of real-time minus uh, bonus, especially for Sonic, but in this context, I was just completely going for uh, real-time, like power on to input end uh, Taz videos, traditional Taz timing, I guess you could say. And the thing about it is, when you did add in those extra shots to reduce your bonus, you weren't actually losing time in most of those situations, were you? Yeah, that's correct. So um, keeping a very close eye on lag is quite easy with uh, Taz Studio and uh, ScriptHawk, um, those Lua script tools uh, that we have now, um, allow you to keep track of that very closely. And... Now, this one isn't on our show notes, but while we're talking about Master System, did you want to talk about Tasmania? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, this was another childhood game of ours. Uh, we used to enjoy watching our mum uh, play through from start to the end of that game. It was another great afternoon. Uh, she was very patient with us, um, yeah. you know, playing through Sonic 1 on the Master System and playing through Tasmania. So, I've got lots of fond memories of that game. Um, obviously I picked it up as a Taz game, um, as I did with Lord of the Sword, it was a similar story, she would uh, try and get to the end, although never could, because that game is brutal, um, but yeah, so Tasmania, um, it's a pretty 
uh, standard platformer, you do have like a boost button, I guess you could say, that lasts for something like 32 frames. Um, I'm lost on the details exactly. It's like the Tasmanian Dev- uh, Devil spin. Yeah, it's Taz from Looney Tunes. <clears throat> Taz from Looney Tunes, yeah. So you can imagine him spinning and, you know, making all sorts of vulgar noises. And the Master System version as well, not the Mega Drive. Or not yes. the Genesis version, that's really different. Yes, that's yeah. correct, the Master System. So it's, uh, yeah, got all that lovely 8-bit music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, quite a soundtrack. Um, and lovely bright pink and yellow colours oh, and yeah. things. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's quite unrefined, I guess you could say. Um, but, you know, still, still a fun little platformer. And uh, that game... Uh, introduced me to quite a few Tazin concepts, um, especially with uh, trade-offs between being greedy with optimization and uh, like planning ahead, I guess you could say. Um, so your boost meter, you have to monitor very carefully. You want to use your boosts when it would be uh, most optimal to use them. So it would be re- reducing the slow movement. So if Taz is moving up a hill... You want to make that happen as quickly as possible by jumping and boosting up there uh, because the average of the two speeds, uh, so the non-boosted and the boosted speed, is lower um, when you're going up a hill uh, than it is when you're going down a hill. The vol- like the average velocity is much higher. So you want to stay on the hill for as long as, like stay going down the hill for as long as possible. And that means not using your boost when you're going down a hill, which is quite counterintuitive. Yeah, I remember you introducing that to me, and that's, like, helped me with a lot of my tazzing. It's obvious in hindsight, like, if you're going down a hill, you've got faster movement, so you don't want to boost so that you stay on the downward slope for longer and get more faster movement. But it's just not so obvious when you're actually in Taz Studio doing the inputs that you should be doing that. That's, yeah, that's right. You really have to think ahead uh, with these things, and you have to generalize uh, a lot as well. Um yeah, we could take a segue and talk about using Taz Studio as input and output uh, at this point because uh, Tasmania was actually the game that uh, made me develop that system um, and get interested in that system. So um, the normal script talk modules have an on-screen display uh, on the left side of the screen overlaid on the game feed and they display things like your X and Y position, your velocity... Um, in some cases, your acceleration, where we have access to that, um, but also your measured uh, position change, so your delta uh, X position and your delta Y position if it's a 2D game and your delta Z position if it's a 3D game. Um, these metrics are extremely useful for optimizing your tool-assisted speedruns, um, and I encourage you to definitely develop uh, modules, if you can, in Script Talk for your games. I think it's a great framework for solving problems so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time you try and support a new game yeah so um before we move on from tasmania i'll bully you into you should finish that Taz, because <laughs> i think your your reasoning is you still want to save one more frame on it is that right yes <laughs> uh so i've been working on that for i guess it's like five years now um it's i have a a work in progress video of the current state of that run on my YouTube channel. Uh, it's called whip two. And, uh, my intention before submitting that 
a work in progress to um, Taz videos for formal uh, judging and publication purposes was to save at least one frame on WIP2 um, to say, you know, so that I'm not submitting a work in progress as a final run. Um, yeah, I guess it, like, at the moment with that game, it's uh, because the speed of Taz Studio is not quite there yet with the uh, adding uh, ScriptHawk OSD uh, readouts as output columns uh, in Taz Studio. So if you would, for example, next to your uh, button one and button two inputs, you would see your X position on every frame uh, and your delta X on every frame and that kind of thing uh, in line in the piano roll view of Taz Studio, which I think is a paradigm shift for uh, future Tazzing for sure. Um, it's adding an extra dimension to those readouts uh, that's always visible. Um, so, I don't know, maybe I'll wait until Taz Studio is fast enough that I can save frames. Right now it takes me like two or three days of really solid work to save one frame on that uh, tool assisted speedrun. Hmm. And you've brought up script talk quite a few times now, which I think I would consider that to be your main project uh, in terms of speedrun stuff. Did you want to talk a bit about that? So I guess, first of all, how you got started with it, then talking about the application for glitch hunting, if you're not super technical, and then talking about the applications to tazzing with that. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I started off uh, my first uh, like technical application uh, work in bizhawk was with donkey kong 64 um we had some documentation of memory addresses uh on the dk64 wiki for example um xcord was mostly doing that at the time um he was using emulators that weren't designed for this kind of technical work they were mainly designed for uh casual play and they didn't include uh very detailed and useful uh, memory tools that uh, BizHawk has, especially things like the Lua API. Um, but uh, because of the way that DK64 memory works, it is uh, you have to dereference a pointer to get to the player object. I know this is quite technical talk in terms of computer science, but uh, it's the reason that you can't have a simple ram watch to display dk's position uh on every map you need to dynamically dereference where dk is in memory um, and to do that you need something more powerful than a a casual play designed emulator you need something with uh very deep technical tools like bizhawk um, so xcord's work was mostly in project 64 with uh mhs so the memory hacking software which could do that kind of thing but it was a bit fiddly uh bizhawk's integration was a lot better for that kind of thing so i started to develop these lua scripts for dk64 and eventually because my interest uh is also in banjo um you were doing some glitch hunting research with banjo so i was trying to get data to you about how the game runs technically so i was replicating those lua scripts uh for different games and I found myself copying and pasting a lot of code, and I noticed a pattern. And uh, when when you notice patterns like that, uh, it may be time to think about uh, taking the derivative, sort of going up an abstraction layer. Um, so at that point, it kind of clicked, and I thought, wow, 
I don't need to reinvent the wheel every time for every game. I can build a framework uh, that allows me to solve problems once and then not have to think about them ever again. So if you were to boot up script talk on Banjo-Kazooie or Donkey Kong 64, what's the first immediate things you'd be able to start doing with it? Yes. Uh, so you can have your... Uh, on your N64 controller, there is a D-pad. It's not used by very many games. Um, initially, that was the main big draw of script talk, was you could uh, move DK or Banjo around the map uh, with the D-pad, and the um, orientation of that movement was uh, corrected uh, for in your camera. So if, if you were facing a certain angle, uh, D-pad up would always feel like forward. D-pad up would always go in the same direction that your player was facing. And that was, I guess, the first example of um, not reinventing the wheel. Like, if you had to write that for every game, that would be quite complicated, but Script Talk's logic abstracts that away from the game modules, so you don't have to write that every time. Um, so that's quite useful as a glitch hunting tool um, to clip through walls quickly to test things, uh, to skip gates. So you don't have to, if you don't have save data in your emulator, uh, you don't have to um, uh, collect a whole bunch of collectibles to test one glitch. You can get to it much quicker. Hmm. And then you've got various other features like setting various flags, setting your moves, warping around to different maps and stuff like that. Yes, so uh, the cuddly term, I guess you could call it for that, is something called take me there. Uh, so you would have a drop-down that lists every single map uh, in the game, and you can either uh, check a checkbox and walk through a door uh, after selecting a map in that drop-down and it'll warp you there, or for some games where the mechanism uh, works a bit differently, you can actually select a uh, map in the drop down and then click a button and it will immediately warp you there. Uh, it depends on uh, the technical implementation uh, that we were able to come across in a case by case basis uh, per game as to what UI we display. Yeah, so I think the big thing about it is you may be familiar with these features from things like practice ROMs from various speed games. But I think the beauty of what you're doing with Script Talk is it's just the general case. So you've got a lot of this reusable code that you can just easily port to other games. Yes, that's correct. Um, and interestingly, uh, interesting that you mentioned that. Um, recently, practice ROMs have been moving in that direction as well, uh, which is really great to see, um, especially for N64 games. Um, they've kind of gone up an abstraction layer now. They're not writing practice ROMs in assembly as much anymore, like MIPS um, assembly directly um they're actually using a c uh, toolchain and they're writing practice roms in c um which is quite portable uh because it uses the standard ultra 64 library um which is what the n64 developers themselves were using back in the day um and interacting sort of uh with the console below the game so drawing things directly in the uh, display list um doing things like that hooking in different places and um sort of it's it's abstracted away from the internal implementations of the games themselves. It's uh, quite close to the console. Hmm. And what does your work with Script Talk, how does that relate to what people are doing on the practice ROM scene? Yeah, sure. So um, 
Lua is a great rapid prototyping language. So you can build things very quickly in Lua. Um, it's a lot more forgiving than something like C or Assembly. So if you have an idea for a user experience uh, that would help a Glitch Hunter or a Tazza, um, you can build it very quickly with Script Talk. And then if it's uh, proven useful, uh, you can port it to a more difficult language like C or Assembly and actually have it running on console. Um, so it's a great rapid prototyping framework for practice menu features. Hmm. I know um, Mittens, who did the original BK practice ROM, uh, was very closely working with you on Script Talk as well. Do you think that helped him with his banjo stuff? Oh, absolutely. Um, Mittens has been great, uh, a great contributor to the project for sure. And uh, I've enjoyed working with him on uh, Taz projects as well. Um, so yeah, it's been great uh, going back and forth with Mittens um, and also back and forth with Connor who wrote uh, Lips, which is the MIPS assembler that we use inside uh, Script Talk to um, assemble uh, MIPS source code into like a GameShark code-like format that uh, gets written into the N64's RAM while the game is running. So uh, Script Talk is a great way to test assembly hacks uh, in a rapid prototyping fashion as well. Uh, so if you are testing a, a feature of a practice menu that you're developing, you can use uh, Script Talk to inject that feature into a save state uh, really quickly without having to patch a ROM. Uh, you can just do it directly in RAM. And you mentioned if you help us with script talk, who else has been really helpful with script talk? Well, uh, yeah, you for one. <laughs> uh, you've you've had some great feedback um, about the user experience and uh, some great technical contributions as well. Um, you know, there's a few commits from you and oh. in terms of code. <laughs> I'll write my messy code and then I'll come back a day later and you've cleaned it up and put it in there. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> I do get a bit funny about styling sometimes, but that's on me. That's my naivety as a programmer. You know, it's... Uh, you know, redoing the work because I don't like the shape of the text. Uh, <laughs> so that's that's on me. Um, but but also uh, people like Tom, uh, Tom Ballam have been extremely helpful. Um, he's made a lot of contributions for DK64 and TUI in not only a script talk sense, but also in a glitch hunting sense and a tool assisted speedrunning sense. Um, just, yeah, an amazing uh, contributor for sure. He's just done an Earthway and Gin test too. Oh, yeah. yeah. We'll have to watch that one. Yeah, we'll, have to, we'll watch it tonight, I reckon. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I know like asking you to list people is always difficult. So if there's, we won't go through and list off every single person, but in the description, we might come up with a list. Yeah, sure. Of a few people who um, be good to talk about. If you want to see purely on a uh, commit basis, uh, there is a public list of contributors that is automatically generated uh, as part of the GitHub uh, repository for Script Talk. So if you want to, check out who's committing what, uh, who's working on which modules, uh, that kind of thing. Um, you can definitely see that. Mm, well, I'll just link to that in the show notes then. Yeah, that's a pretty good solution. Mm -hmm. Now, um, we've talked a lot about 3D N64 games. Do you want to talk a bit about what Script Talk looks like in a 2D game? Yeah, sure. So uh, Tasmania um, is a good example of that. Um, it's a kind of a, a great place to experiment. I guess you could say like... Uh, because we were talking about rapid prototyping features before, um, often it's a lot easier to rapid prototype features inside a 2D engine than it is inside a 3D engine uh, because the camera is usually quite fixed. Um, so you can uh, play around things thinking about two dimensions instead of three uh, and, and uh, not usually thinking about rotation and things like that. 
Um, so one of those uh, features, those deep features that has come about as part of those rapid prototyping sessions is something like drag and drop uh, hitboxes. So you'll probably see a few scripts floating around uh, at tazvideos.org um, for hitbox viewers for games. Um, generally, those are pretty bespoke. They kind of reinvent the wheel every time. Um, and as such, the features are usually quite limited. They are helpful in terms of uh, optimizing your tool-assisted speedruns. You can see uh, if you're getting close enough uh to enemies to cut off some movement uh, from your path, for example. Um, it's useful in that case. Uh, but they are quite lacking in features sometimes um, just because the developer resources uh, aren't there. So we've kind of abstracted that API away again. Um, if you know the format of hitboxes in your game's memory, you can actually send that to ScriptHawk um, and you get drag and drop uh, for free, which is amazing. We've... Like, <laughs> once we've got that data um, from your game module, we can provide some really deep and complex features that would actually take you a long time to implement from scratch. Yeah, so I think this is really good. Like, grab your character and drag them around the screen. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, as we were talking about before, in a glitch hunting uh, setting, your D-pad is quite useful on your N64 controller. Um, for finding glitches to get through walls quickly, that sort of thing. The, I guess the analogous equivalent for 2D games is using your mouse to move your character around and clip them through walls uh, to test things uh, quicker that way. Hmm. And now I reckon we'll get to this specific point at the end as well, but where should people go if they want to get started making their own script talk modules? Yes, uh, so looking at existing modules uh, is a great way. Generally these days, um, I copy and paste uh, the smallest 2D or the smallest 3D example I can find um, and sort of work from there. We do have a blank template that is uh, loosely based on a 3D module, um, but we aren't very good at keeping that template up to date. Like the ScriptHawk API, uh, we try not to be too breaking in those changes. Um, but the script talk API does change from time to time. We add features and things like that. So the blank template is kind of uh, out of date in that sense. It's missing some advanced features that you could use. I guess uh, if your game, you could read through scripttalk.lua itself. And uh, I try to make my code as self-documenting as possible. Um, so if you wanted to get a sense of which features are available to your game module, you could actually read through um, scripttalk.lua and you would get like a list of functions that you could implement and uh, you would get features from scripttalk for free. Yeah, very good. And I mean, I've written scripttalk modules myself occasionally and even with my poor programming skills, it's all right. <laughs> yeah, I, I try to make it as user-friendly as possible for sure. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like if you ever want to ask questions, I think we're both in the Discord for this podcast anyway yeah so. absolutely um i'm always uh, open to answering questions via direct message if anybody has them i'm happy to talk with people for sure <clears throat> all right so with um script talk you were talking about mainly doing dk64 now some of your work actually made it into emulation did you want to talk about the bone displacement fix Yes, uh, so it's a long-standing issue with uh, DK64 emulators. Um, if you ever booted up Project 64 back in the day, you might have come across it. Um, I certainly did. 
if you grabbed onto a tree or if you grabbed onto a vine, um, DK would sometimes uh, start falling apart, like spiking, um, or he would warp to um, out of bounds suddenly and void out. Uh, so you would be put at the start of the map again. Um, so this is a graphical problem. Um, it, the game just doesn't look right, but it's also a gameplay problem because it prevents you from doing some of the puzzles in, for example, bonus barrels or that sort of thing. Uh, so it's, it's been a, a very long-standing issue with N64 emulation. And, uh, I guess since 2000 and I don't know, 14, I was kind of on a mission to solve that. Um, it's a success story. Um, I'm happy to say that it has been solved, uh, but wow, what a journey. So the first version of the fix that I was able to find after doing extensive technical documentation of the layout of DK64 in the uh, Nintendo 64's RAM um, was in the form of a GameShark code. Uh, and what it did, it, it disabled part of the sound engine uh, so that the processing was quick enough per frame that it didn't trigger um, interrupts in the wrong place uh, so that the bone displacement would happen, or trigger exceptions, rather. It's not uh, interrupts in the Z80 sense. It's more like uh, floating point exceptions, that kind of thing. Um, so it was like a two-line GameShark code that disabled your sound uh, but also fixed uh, this bone displacement issue. So if you look at Ring Rush's original 101% low tad, it's got some funky stuff going on with the sound because your fix actually allowed him to make that. Uh, yes. Uh, so, yeah, he had to do a lot of video editing. And I'm sorry, Ring Rush, that must have been absolutely horrible to do. I wish I had the uh, second version of the fix uh, when he did that uh, playthrough. But um, I'm so pleased to see that you were able to do it, uh, even with those limitations. Uh, it was, yeah, just so amazing watching through that with you, uh, with Jake. Um, just, yeah. I think we got to watch it together, didn't we? Uh, yeah, I reckon we did. Um, and yeah, that was a real highlight of my um, career, absolutely, for sure, seeing that. Um, knowing that, um, you know, a little part of my work was a part of that bigger project um, was a great feeling. Yeah, and that's the really satisfying thing about going up and up layers of abstraction with speedrunning and getting into the more sciencey side of stuff, because... If you find something like, for example, the bone displacement fix, you can see it being used all over the place, or if you find a glitch or something. That's right. Um, and the output of everybody that you have a positive impact on with your tools, the combined output of those people is much greater than your singular output as a single uh, speedrunner or a single Tazza. Um, so it's it feels like you're making a huge impact compared to the amount of actual work you're doing. Yeah, and at the end of the day, we still need speedrunners and Tazas because for me, that's a lot of the reason why I do the research and glitch hunting that I do. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And there's just different sides of things. Different people have different interests, and I like to take a bit of everything from RTA, Tazzing, uh, science, glitch hunting, and then I think you do a little bit of everything but stick a lot to the science side of thing these days. Yeah, yeah, I'm mostly doing uh, research and uh, script talk planning, like big picture uh, planning, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Trying to keep on top of um, 
emulation projects as well, so keeping a pretty close eye on how N64 emulation is developing. Um, I'm really interested in what eventually will replace Movement 64 Plus in uh, BizHawk, for example, um, because I would love to see DK64 uh, lag emulation uh, improve to the point where it's quite close to console. Mm, DK64 actually compared to something like Banjo-Kazooie isn't too bad these days. Yeah, so for DK64, the lag emulation doesn't really affect glitches as such, surprisingly, but um, on Banjo, it is quite common for a clip to be possible on console and impossible on emulator or vice versa. Uh, So the emulator inaccuracies actually affect uh, your glitch hunting abilities, um, whereas it doesn't really affect it much in DK64. It's mostly things like cutscenes being longer uh, on console than they are on emulator, things like that. Um, But yeah, less so uh, affecting routes and things like that. Hmm. Did you want to talk a bit about what the future of N64 emulation is going to look like? Yeah, so um, I've been following Bu, um, who worked on Beastness and Hygen and that sort of thing, uh, for a long time. Um, they are quite a pioneer um, in emulation, and I have huge respect for them. So he, the the latest project that they're working on is a N64 uh, emulator, um, and it's amazing to see how quickly that developed um, from nothing to booting commercial software in like two to three weeks. Uh, with amazing accuracy and fidelity and quality, um, amazing, you know, progress. Um, So eventually what I would like to see is uh, that system, uh, that emulated system integrated into BizHawk uh, to replace Movement 64+. Yeah, we do need something to replace it because the Movement 64+, is quite old at the moment. And as we said, there's a lot of inaccuracies. So there's... Some exciting stuff happening all over the place. And the one that I've heard probably the most about is Sen64. Yes. Um, so Sen64 was, I guess, the attempt at a cycle-accurate N64 emulator. Um, now, that is a technical term, but it essentially means that it's as close as you can get to running the real hardware. Sort of it's, it's a lower level emulation of the CPU uh, pipeline, the graphics pipeline, that sort of thing. Um, so it doesn't take shortcuts for the sake of improving the casual experience. Um, it's just a reference implementation that tries to be as as close as possible to the real hardware to emulate these weird edge cases uh, with timing or edge cases with um, uh, undefined behavior, that sort of thing. Um, and it's, it's important to our metagames uh, communities to be as accurate as possible in that sense. Um, it's less important to people who are just playing the, game, the games casually, as long as they feel nice to play, uh, that's, that's enough uh, for that audience. But uh, our needs are a little bit higher, especially if we're trying to uh, console verify tool-assisted speedruns. We need uh, very close uh, accuracy to consoles. Hmm. Um, so Sen64 started out as an interpreter which is a method of emulation that doesn't do any uh, dynamic recompilation of the game's code so it, it just runs the values as it sees them it doesn't try to um, uh, make it uh, faster by reinterpreting them as x86 instructions um, 
and not looking at the MIPS instructions ever again, like in a big block. Um, the speed advantage comes uh, from breaking out of that interpreter loop um, and running the game code as dynamically recompiled code. Um, you will see uh, Mupin64 actually does have a, a, a dynamic recompiler. That's why it can be quite a lot faster. Um, and Zen64 actually was working on a rewrite that did include a dynamic recompiler. Um, I know that uh, Nier's uh, or Bue's um, emulator goal is eventually to include a dynamic recompiler, which would make it um, fast enough to be an enjoyable casual experience on current consumer computer hardware. I guess um, the trade-off is lots of people use BizHawk uh, for casual play as well. So while accuracy is important, um, the incentives from such a large audience of casual players, um, you'll get negative feedback if you make that trade-off in the wrong direction sometimes. So if you increase the accuracy at the cost of the casual experience, um, you'll get complaints. But I think they have a good solution for NES because they have quick NES and NESHawk. Yes, so a solution uh, like that is quite useful, especially for like high-speed uh, Lua scripts, like uh, AI bots and things like that. Um, so it's not necessarily just making that trade-off for casual play. It's also a technical advantage for uh, high-speed simulation of uh, different branches and inputs that you could make in your tool-assisted speedrun. Hmm. Speaking of high-speed simulation, did you want to talk about some of the theory that I guess is being put into practice with SM64 at the moment? Yes, um, and this ties in also to accurate uh, Nintendo 64 emulation in an interesting way. So um, recently, you may be familiar with a decompilation project of Super Mario 64, uh, the goal of which was to recreate the... Um, C source code for Super Mario 64 with uh, clean room reverse engineering techniques. Um, and that project was successful. We have a matching uh, C source code for um, uh, Super Mario 64. Um, matching in this context means that we recreated the toolchain such that um, when it's compiled, it outputs the exact same uh, MIPS instructions um, down to the exact byte of the original uh, Super Mario 64 ROM. So what application does that have to tool-assisted speedruns in particular? Yes. Um, so now that we have that, um, we can also port Super Mario 64 to modern uh, ar like APIs and architectures. So instead of using the Ultra 64 library, uh, we can actually uh, use, do the graphics calls, uh, the draw calls and things like that, in uh, OpenGL or in Direct3D or in Vulkan, um, the graphics APIs that uh, PC games use, um, which are quite a lot faster on our modern hardware than uh, running the interpreter loop or even faster than running a dynamic uh, recompiler, but still using a uh, interpretation layer for the graphics calls. So doing things native, you can get amazing speeds um, of uh, simulating the Super Mario 64 physics engine on your computer. Um, now, physics engine specifically is important, as as you may well imagine, for dual-assisted speedrunning. 
So from my understanding, they're doing a lot of simulations of tool-assisted speedruns on there, and they're able to run it at, like, what, a million times faster or something? <laughs> Am I getting that number right? So the uh, the details of the number is less important than the order of magnitude. Yeah. Um, I don't remember the exact uh, figure myself, but I have seen examples of this running. So uh, another reason I, I bring it up is because uh, the interface for using these simulation tools uh, looks a lot like our TAS Studio inside BizHawk. So um, it has the N64 controller inputs um, on one side, but it also has these output columns that I was talking about earlier. It has uh, things like your X position, your Y position, your Z position, your facing angle, um, uh, velocity, um, just so many amazing readouts that are extremely useful for optimizing your tool-assisted gameplay. Hmm. So I guess the theory is like where you'd see what buttons you're pressing on each frame, you're going to see that. And then how do you think that would help you optimize your test? Um, mainly it is uh, cutting down the iteration time. So um, you you can run the physics engine at this incredible speed um, using native APIs uh, and native x86 code. Um, but you can also uh, watch memory uh, in a much more integrated way. You could build some very complex uh, memory viewers, like uh, there's a Super Mario 64 technical runtime observer and object processor. But it's uh, it's called Stroop. Uh, <laughs> uh, Stroop is amazing. It's a great tool uh, by Panenkoek. And uh, it outputs basically everything you can know about Super Mario 64 uh, in this amazing tabbed uh, UI. It looks like a script talk module on steroids. Um, I am just in awe at what they, that team was able to accomplish uh, with that tool. So building on that too, uh, since we're rendering the graphics with native draw calls on modern architectures and have access to the high-level uh, source code for the game, uh, we could modify the game to render, for example, Mario's position on every previous frame or even every quarter step uh, to check whether your movement lines uh, in your tool-assisted speed run are optimal uh, at a glance without even looking at the output columns uh, in the TAS Studio-style interface. Um, obviously, you double-check with those more detailed numbers uh, when you're finishing things up, but that intuitive uh, visual feedback of seeing Mario's physical position on every step in the actual rendered game feed uh, is just an amazing amount of integrated details for um, quickly checking for obvious errors. So that kind of integration um, is what they're really going for, um, getting insanely detailed uh, um, outputs and also abstracting it away from a very slow uh, and often inaccurate N64 emulator um, by recreating the original, sort of like a, math, a formal verification of the original Super Mario 64 high-level source code, um, we can recreate that and uh, build upon that directly rather than trying to uh, emulate um, the lower-level details. Mm, yeah, it's very exciting. Um, do you see this happening for any other games anytime soon? Uh, yes, I do. Um, and eventually I believe there will be a... Um, similar thing like script talk for decompilations, I guess you could say. Um, so there are other N64 games in the works. 
um, from the Zelda series, for example, um, and yeah, Diddy Kong Racing, um, GoldenEye. Um, a lot of games are undergoing this decompilation process, and um, I guess if we could build a similar abstraction. So if we built the Taz Studio uh, input and output um, as a standard uh, UX um, uh, framework, and then we could port that to every single decompilation, and we can take the uh, N64 emulators uh, out of the loop, um, we could go straight from this um, optimized uh, Taz Studio style inputs to a console verified run. Uh, if we output um, the format that the current uh, playback bots um, use, so like a .m64 or a .bk2, for example, um, directly from that UI, we wouldn't even need to use BizHawk anymore. How does running something like SM64 natively through this reverse-engineered source code, how does that deal with lag? Yes, um, that is a great question. Um, thankfully, uh, SM64 is not a particularly laggy game, um, and the input uh, playback is not uh, affected by lag uh, very much. So that's a reason why it was able to be synced uh, so quickly on console. Um, so Super Mario 64 was one of, if not the first, uh, console-verified N64 runs. Um, and I guess the reason for that is because um, Super Mario 64 is sort of the poster child for the N64. Um, when people develop emulators, there's a joke that they don't develop N64 emulators, they develop Super Mario 64 emulators. Um, so it's often the first game they test, and it's the test case that they've done the most development against. Yeah, Super Mario 64 emulators that coincidentally run other games. Yes, exactly. <laughs> So the lag that happens when you play a game on real N64 hardware comes from a few bottlenecks in the system. Uh, there'll be a bit of technical computer science talk here, so bear with me. Um, accessing uncached uh, RDRAM is quite slow compared to modern DDR3 or DDR4 RAM. Uh, also, DMAing from the ROM to RAM on the N64 is much slower than loading assets from modern storage or RAM. Uh, most of these delays aren't emulated in current N64 emulators, uh, notably Movement 64 Plus and Project 64. Um, also in the N64's CPU pipeline, uh, MIPS instructions take a variable amount of CPU cycles to execute uh, depending on the current state of the pipeline. Uh, most high-level emulators just make every instruction uh, take a fixed amount of cycles to run. So you may be familiar with setting a value called count per op. Uh, which is literally telling the emulator how many cycles uh, each MIPS instruction should take to emulate. Uh, setting this to a higher value causes uh, more perceived lag. Setting this uh, to a lower value causes much less uh, perceived lag. Uh, but it's impossible to tune this value uh, to match the console exactly. Um, you'd have to emulate the entire pipeline cycle accurately. Um, the MIPS CPU is also running at a fairly slow clock rate compared to our modern processors. Um, so, uh, yeah, some N64 games compensate for lag by increasing the character's speed uh, when the games slow down. 
Um, so this means that we'll need to find a way to either simulate those uh, delays in RDRAM, CPU speed, and uh, stalled CPU pipeline uh, exactly, which means improving the accuracy of existing emulators, uh, which is the uh, MESS, um, uh, SN64, and ARIES uh, approach. Um, or for decompilations, it might be a process of uh, trial and error to arbitrarily predict when the real hardware would be lagging uh, and insert a fake lag frame into the TAS Studio style input role, uh, which would cause uh, the correct compensation from the game's physics engine to still take place and fix uh, a desync that would occur if you played the run uh, without that fake lag frame on real hardware. So um, once we have these decompilations available um, and can render graphics using the native uh, PC APIs, um, they provide an amazing user experience that aren't possible with emulators on PCs. Um, so <laughs> it's interesting. The emulator authors have a large audience of casual players that use their emulators for casual play. But once the decompilations become a more uh, appealing experience for these people that just want to experience these games. Um, I have a feeling that people will start to move away from emulators as a, a primary method of enjoying these games. Um, so as a side effect from that, uh, the, em the emulator authors are freed up to focus more on accuracy. Um, so they can focus on lower level implementation details about how the console works rather than trying to add enhancements to games. So uh, a lot of the casual players are interested in adding things like widescreen or adding things like overclocking to remove lag, which are obviously bad for accuracy, but are great things for the casual experience. Hmm, it'll be interesting to see how that turns out. So talking about N64, we talked a bit about your previous tasks. Did you want to touch on Smash 64 a bit? Yes. Um, so I co-authored a uh, Smash 64 tool-assisted speedrun back in 2017 uh, with Mittens. Um, this tool-assisted speedrun was a bit different to the previous uh, Smash 64 uh, speedruns because it was uh, focused on break the targets and board the platforms uh, minigames. Okay, so your Taz did all of those minigames, didn't it? Yes, that's correct. So we went through every character um, one by one and we created uh, optimal playthroughs of those stages. So we were going for in-game time, uh, minimizing that, but also minimizing the real-time um, uh, playback of the movie file as well. And how did you come about getting interested in Break the Targets, Board the Platforms, Time Trials? Well, um, that was part of our uh, experience growing up as well. Um, but also more recently, um, we had a little contest on the uh, Pikachu break the target stage. We, we, uh, Jake and I, uh, going back and forth, um, trying to compete to get better times, um, was an amazingly fun afternoon and night. Um, so after that, I sort of, uh, looked into, uh, creating a, a script hook module for Smash 64 and also beginning to look at tazzing, um, those stages. And how did Mittens get interested in it? Yes. So, um, this was Mitten's uh, first introduction to tool-assisted speedrunning. Uh, he was asking for a game suggestion, and I mentioned that I was working on Smash 64 and would be willing to bring him on as a co-author to help him learn to Taz. Um, and I thought, uh, even though it's a Nintendo 64 game, 
uh, it's a great place to start because it's a it, basically a 2D game. Um, even though it is technically a 3D viewport, um, there is a Z position, but it's never really used. So the movement is quite simple for a Nintendo 64 game. Had he not done Drill Dozer at that point? Yeah, uh, Smash 64 was his first project. Um, he did take a break later on in production to start Drill Dozer uh, because he wanted to experiment in a new game uh, without the pressure of uh, learning in-depth tech for all 12 characters in an already pretty well-optimized run. Uh, he did submit Drill Dozer a little bit before Smash, uh, but once that was done, he returned to Smash and made some really great contributions. Uh, we had a really satisfying back and forth uh, with a new route on Fox's Board the Platform stage. Uh, that was a highlight of production for me, for sure. So you ended up releasing the Taz on Taz videos, and from what I understand, there's been some improvements found since? Yes. Um, so... Uh, KM or Nick, who holds um, all pretty much all of the uh, real-time attack uh, records for the Break the Targets and Board the Platforms time trial, he is an absolute machine. Um, he has been very excited about uh, our tool-assisted speedrun and has picked up uh, some t- tool-assisted speedrunning skills uh, himself in, in the uh, following three years. Um, so he learned how to use uh, BizHawk and ScriptHawk and uh, Taz Studio and all of those tools uh, after seeing our run and sort of becoming interested in things. Um, so we have been uh, chatting with him uh, while he worked very hard on finding some improvements. Um, he has improved the run uh, quite impressively over these three years. So we do have a follow-up uh, that is coming out soon. Um the US version is already on uh, KM or Nick's channel. Um, we'll probably l- link that in the description. Um, yeah, so you should definitely check it out. So can you tell me a bit about the difference between Japanese and US Smash 64? Absolutely. So um, the competitive uh, Smash 64 scene has quite extensive documentation about character differences between the two versions. Um, so the details are a bit fuzzy for me now because it was three years ago, but some characters were uh, faster on the US version and some characters were faster on the Japanese version. Uh, the only character that has an advantage uh, on PAL, I believe, is Link. His uh, horizontal speed in the air is a lot higher on PAL. Yeah, I seem to remember that. So the Japanese version has an advantage for all characters in Break the Targets, uh, which is all attacks have one fewer freeze frame on the Japanese version than the US version. So when you break a target with a physical uh, non-projectile attack, you can start moving one frame earlier on the Japanese version than you can on the US version. Uh, This means that in some stages you can make cycles on the Japanese version, uh, usually platform cycles, uh, that you just can't make on the US version. Uh, the US version, though, has an advantage for board the platforms, uh, namely the Smash DI, or directional influence, uh, travels 40% further on the US version than the Japanese version. Uh, so when you take damage and you use the joystick to wriggle around uh, to try and escape the attack, uh, you go further by 40% on the US version. Uh, damage boosts are more frequently used in the board the platform stages, and attacks uh, with US's longer freeze frames are rarely used in border platforms. Uh, so theoretically, US should be better for border platforms. So you basically completely tazzed US and Japanese and then 
you figured out which of those was the faster overall. Yes. Uh, so we kept a spreadsheet uh, with both the US and the Japanese versions um, of every stage. So we had the board the platforms and uh, break the targets for US and Japan. Um, every single stage, we did a complete playthrough and we compared the times between the two versions. And which one was faster? <laughs> uh, thankfully, Japan. Um, subject to verification. <laughs> 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 All right, I might cut that one out completely. Um, so do you find that after doing the TAS of Smash 64, break the targets, board the platforms, do you find that you're better at competitive multiplayer? Um, I guess we'll find out. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I remember after you did it, you like... I came over and we played the game of Smash and you were doing all these Z cancels and stuff and I thought, what is this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, this uh, competitive nonsense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 You're teaching me how to actually get good at Smash. But, right. Yeah. <laughs> mm, very good. Um, now, I don't think we've talked yet about some of the DK64, I guess you call them modifications. So should we start with Tag Anywhere? Yes. Um, so... I guess my foray into developing uh, native uh, MIPS assembly and that sort of thing, I had done, I have played around with it in the past, but I never really built anything like a complete uh, experience or a complete playthrough before. Um, so my first project in that sense is uh, Donkey Kong 64 ROM hack called DK64 Tag Anywhere. And I, I, I take it you can tag anywhere in that hack? Uh, yes. <laughs> so the goal was, um, obviously some criticisms of Donkey Kong 64 is it's a bit uh, heavy on the backtracking. So you would uh, go back and you like, you would go and complete a puzzle and then you would have to go back and tag to a different Kong before you could complete another puzzle. And it sort of broke you out of that flow state. Um, so you were forced to backtrack regularly. Um, the goal of this hack is to make it so that you can uh, complete the puzzles in that flow state um, more thoroughly uh, without having to do any backtracking. Yeah, because I used to hate like coming across some like blue bananas as Donkey Kong and then having to go and get Lanky. It was really frustrating. That's right. Yeah. So it essentially takes out that backtracking uh, and the mechanism that it uses is the uh, handy dandy D-pad. Uh, that isn't used in uh, regular gameplay. So we were able to bind uh, tagging the next Kong and the previous Kong uh, in the rotation cycle. So DK, Diddy, Lanky, Tiny, Chunky. Um, you can go back or forward in that uh, rotation and it wraps around uh, using the D-pad. Is that actually a working ROM hack now? Yes, uh, that's a complete working ROM hack that works on console. All right, we need to play it tonight. Yes, sounds good. Yeah, good, good. Um, where can you get it from? Um, so the Script Talk repository has the complete source code for it. Um, it's also available on romhacking.org, and we'll put a link to that in the description. And a note about like the ROM hacking as well, it can sometimes have legal connotations, but I presume you released a IPS patch? Yes. Um, so it is illegal to distribute 
um, modified versions of games or unmodified versions of games, the only legal way to obtain a ROM file is to rip it off of your cartridge as a backup yourself. Um, so that's the intention is your, you rip your DK64 cartridge um, to your computer as a big Endian ROM file. Uh, then you, you apply the ROM hack uh, patch that you downloaded. Um, the patch only contains the bytes that have changed. It doesn't contain the whole game. Um, and that's that's how we can distribute these legally. Yeah, because it's, it's only your code that you're distributing. It's none of Nintendo's. That's one. correct. Yeah. There's there's uh, no work from Nintendo at all. Yeah. All right. And uh, still on the topic of DK64, did you want to talk about your work with Noclip? Uh, yes. Um, so there's a fantastic website. Uh, it's The <laughs> URL is noclip.website, which is a great domain name. <laughs> Um, and what it is is a uh, a museum of video game levels. So you can uh, it's got a big list of games, and inside those lists of games is a big list of levels. And you can view any level you like with a three D um, camera. It's uh, gorgeous. It's a beautiful experience. Um, you can you know get nostalgic about all your favorite levels from games as a kid. Um, now my uh, contribution to that website. Um, was actually gathering my research uh, notes from examining DK64 and basically uh, replicating the game's process uh, to display a map. So from loading the map from the cartridge into RAM and then turning that into a displayable uh, graphics call, like a display list or something um, from all the vertices and all the object placements and all that stuff. Um, I basically understand the complete pipeline that the game goes through to go from ROM to screen uh, for DK64. So with that knowledge, I was able to assist in developing a module for noclip.website along with Mittens who helped with vertex address issues, uh, texture passing issues, among other things. That you can actually view DK64 levels uh, in the browser um, with a lovely 3D camera. Um, it's nice and pretty. Uh, so you can relive uh, DK64 in the browser. Um, obviously, uh, you can't play the game in the browser um, because that would violate uh, some legal issues. Um, we don't distribute the entire ROM uh, as part of noclip.website um, for those legal reasons. But yeah, you can see the levels anyway and paint around them, get lovely screenshots, get nice and nostalgic. Uh, it's a great experience. And yeah, the like you've helped with DK64, but beyond that, there's so many games on that website. I really love going and having a flick around on all of them. Oh, absolutely. And the modules, um, the developers there are extremely competent. Um, you can, they place objects in the level and they have like animated textures and, um, you know, animated objects jumping around and things like that. It, it feels like you're in the game world, but um, in a browser, it's amazing. Mm, definitely. All right, so I think the other thing you wanted to mention before we finish up is talking about, I guess, if people do get into, like, tazzing and then eventually into programming, how, for example, writing something for Script Talk could help them get into those skills. Yes, yeah, so if, if, you're, if you're like me and you didn't have a formal computer science education as such... Um, these emulators and viewing memory and, you know, uh, creating script talk modules, studying games in these sort of sandboxes is a great way to learn computer science concepts and patterns 
uh, without going through uh, the formal education pipeline. It's also a very fun way to learn these concepts because you're interacting with um, nostalgic games from your childhood while doing it. Yeah, and for a bit of background as well, like Isataj, while he said he didn't have a formal background in computer science, like you do have some formal education in it. And uh, me, on the other hand, my formal education is in maths. So we often have a really interesting dynamic between us to solve problems. Yes, that's correct. Um, you're very mathematical in your thinking, and it shows in your uh, Lua code as well. It's very um, beautiful in a mathematical sense. It solves problems very efficiently, uh, but it's hideous in a computer science. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's, wow. Uh, it's, it's <laughs> disgusting in a computer science sense. <laughs> Uh, and I'm sure that you feel the same way uh, about about my code from a mathematical perspective. It's absolutely hideous, but uh, from a computer science perspective, it's quite elegant. And I really enjoy it when you like come in telling me about this really interesting thing that you've found in in a game, like geometrically or mathematically. And I go, oh yeah, that's that's this thing. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> yeah. this. Uh, a really simple mathematical concept that you would learn on the first day of advanced mathematics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I've done a new trick for you once or twice. Yes, yeah. so so we go back and forth. Uh, I, I'm a game developer as well, so I'm working on a game project, and uh, Jake has been an amazing resource uh, for mathematics consultation in that progress, uh, in that process as well. Mm. All right, so... I appreciate you making the time today, especially considering you've got like full-time job working on a game and all this other stuff going on. So it is really good to sit down and have this chat with you, which we've been meaning to do for a really long time. Um, did you want to tell people where they can find you? Uh, sure. I'm on uh, most places as Isotage. Um, my primary social network these days is GitHub. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I follow a lot of open source projects there, so I'm uh, pretty active there usually. But I'm also on um, Twitter, Twitch, YouTube. Uh, you can find me anywhere as Isotage. Mm. Excellent. Well, thanks for coming on. I hope you enjoyed listening.